Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This episode of The Educated Hunter is brought to you by Go Native. The legends at Go Native have put together a meal pack especially for our Educated Hunter listeners. This pack contains three of their pre-cooked meal pouches and three servings of mashed potato. You simply just boil them for a couple of minutes to reheat them, add the hot water to the mashed potato and you're good to go. These meals are great because they are high quality, they're tasty and they're very easy to prepare. So you can come back in the dark and within a couple of minutes you can have a high class meal sitting on your plate ready to go. They have also knocked $5 off the price for you, our Educated Hunter listeners. Just follow the link in the show notes or jump onto our website and there's a link there as well. When you get to check out, enter the promo code E-D-U-H-U-N-T-5. Big thanks to Go Native. Hope you take this opportunity to try out a few of their meals. I think once you do, you'll never go back. Alrighty, we're at it again. Tonight's conversation is with Joseph Peter. Joseph Peter is the man behind Hard Yards Hunting. And importantly, the, re- the you know the big reason on why I wanted to catch up with Joseph is because he is, I guess, one of the purists in hunting, you know, and particularly as an outfitter here in New Zealand. His hunting is very explorative, adventurous, demanding, but, re- you know, massively rewarding. You know, Joseph is always... I guess in the mountains, but he's also always in pursuit of a very mature animal. I can't remember the statistics, but I know the the average age on his tar that he guided last year was exceptional. So it's a it's a good conversation. It's a very honest conversation about guiding in New Zealand, being an outfitter, the the goods and bads. We talk about international experiences working in Canada, uh, his recent hunt for Ibex in Kazakhstan, how it felt to be on the receiving end of a guided trip, I guess. But yeah, we, we cover a few topics. Um, we don't go deep in anything, I guess, political or issue-based. Uh, this conversation was really about the, the style of Joseph's hunting and, and, and why he hunts like that. You know, I think it's a very pure form of hunting that was recently shown by the Pace Brothers for a short film that was also shared with the Modern Huntsman as an article. But yeah, he is, basically he is what he says he is. He is a hard yard hunter and he is a very authentic hunter with very high self-imposed standards. So it was a really good chat. And I do hope to have another chat with Joseph in the future. I know he's got a couple of things planned, and I will hold him to those. But I do hope to catch up with Joseph, you know, in the future, and um, yeah, have, have another chat about about some, I guess, different ideas and different topics. But it's a great it's a great podcast. Definitely get on there and have a listen. Yeah, I think everybody will leave with a. A certain amount of admiration for the way Joseph hunts. And I think that's important. Enjoy the podcast. All right, Joseph. So uh, 
What have we got? Thursday afternoon, th- Thursday evening, having a beer in the lounge. Yep. Time for a chat. Living the dream. <laughs> living, living the dream. Well, yeah, arguably from the outside looking in. Uh, <laughs> we'll probably talk about that some sometime in the future. So where where did hunting start for you, Joseph? Is it Joseph Joe? Yep. Oh, either either. Yep. Um, I have a pretty what I think is a normal sort of New Zealand hunting background. I grew up on a sheep and beef farm, so shooting rabbits and shooting goats and shooting pigs was just kind of the normal thing you did. Um, And kind of as kids, we started just messing around, hunting what we could, and then as I got into the teenage years, I started to look at it a bit more seriously, mainly mainly goat shooting when I was growing up. That was the big thing, you know, getting, getting big tallies and... Smashing goats and Marlboro, there's plenty of them there to shoot. <clears throat> when I was about 16, I went with my uncle Bernard, who had started hard yards hunting, and I went on a a few hunts with him. He took our whole family on a tar hunt um, down and behind Messy when it changed the tenure of view, when it first um, switched over to public land and out of Crooked Spur, and I shot my first bull tar then. And then I did a few guiding trips with him, and that kind of got the mountain hunting sort of embedded in me <laughs> and then I couldn't couldn't yeah couldn't get it out of my head after that and a few years later I did a few hunts with him and Bernie kind of got a bit older and kind of got a bit sick of it and he asked me one day he said do you want to do you want to take over this you know do you want to run this run this hunting business and all we really had at the time was a website and we had a bit of a contact list and that was it and I was Sort of didn't know what I was doing, and I said, "Oh yeah, I'll give it a go." From the outside looking in, <laughs> yes, this is me. I've made yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's it's one of those things. I think if you get given an opportunity, you've you've got to give it a go and see what you think. And it 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 takes a long time in, in the guiding industry to build a client base and, and build a reputation and figure out what's actually going on. And I haven't made it by any means to the top of the list, or you know, I'm not making my millions, but. I'm starting to figure it out. Yeah, I've still got a lot to learn, but yeah, it's probably always a work in progress. I think everything <laughs> everything is, you know. So yeah, don't bracket don't bracket yourself. It's not <laughs> no. it's not only as a hunting outfitter in New Zealand. Yeah, there's learning everywhere. Uh, it's life in general. Yeah. So so I'm picking up from that that your uncle was probably your hunting mentor as such, or yeah, a little bit. Um, I don't know whether we really had had a hunting mentor um me and my younger brother jimmy we we did a lot of kind of figuring stuff out on our own um we did a a bit of hunting with both my mother and my father but they were very much you know kind of old school just go hunting mentality Mm -hmm. like there was no there wasn't any goal or you know thing we were trying to achieve we were just going to go filling some time yeah we're just going to shoot some goats or shoot a pig or you know there wasn't a it wasn't a plan as such. You're yeah. just going to walk up a hill and carry a gun and you see something, you shoot it. Um, <laughs> so after, when I got into my teenage years and later teenage years, I spent a lot of time hunting on my own and hunting with my brother. And the same through my early 20s. And a lot of things I just kind of figured out on my own or tried to figure mm-hmm. out on my mm-hmm. own. Um, through failure? Or, yeah. Yep. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the old bit of success, but more yeah. failure than success. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to fail to succeed, and you've got to you've got to set goals. That's something you've got to do yourself. I think if you if if you want to achieve something, you've got mm-hmm. to set a goal and you've got to work at it. And 
mm-hmm. and go after it. And so I did that a bit with, with bow hunting. I took on some different challenges, some things I wanted to do, you know, shoot a chamois with a bow, or shoot a tar with a bow. And, and I worked and I achieved those things. And when you make a plan and you achieve it, you know, you feel good. The and satisfaction go, level's higher. Isn't yeah, it? You, you learn something. And when you make a goal and you don't achieve it, then you sit down and go, why didn't that work? And, yep. and, Evaluate. You, know, and you know for next time. So do you still bow hunt? Not really. Um, mainly just a time issue. Mm-hmm. Like, it's easy to think guides go hunting a lot, and we do, you know, we, we hunt for a living, but there's a big difference between hunting for someone else, you know, yep. as a job, or hunting for yourself and getting your own time to hunt. Yep. Yeah, very um, much so. That's very much what kept me out of that side <laughs> of things. <laughs> yeah, and mainly just now, you know, our family's growing, and, and we've, I've got a lot more stuff going on in my life, yep. so my own recreational hunting is kind of taking a bit of a, a bit of a sidestep, but I've got a few years left in me, I hope. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And I guess, I guess the transition of your hunting bit to or from bow hunting or in whatever form it comes and goes to, it's, it just fits with circumstance, doesn't it? Like, yeah. a, you know, look at my hunting and it's gone from very small game to all international, just traveling to now morning pig hunts because I can go back home and see my daughter and look after the family while my wife works. <clears> you know, like it's, it's just evolving, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's just your out and out passion to be in the environment achieving said task for the day, the week, the month. Um, that That's sort of what gets you out there. And I think it's important that all, all types of hunting is appreciated, you know, because they're all different. But but they are, if you really narrow them right down, not all of them, I shouldn't say all of them, but the majority all fall back into the same sort of places and the fact that we want to go out, we want to achieve something and we want to be challenged and we want to have a good time doing it, we want to see some cool stuff, like the basis of them are always pretty consistent. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the same but different. And I think you really notice that if you do a bit of international hunting or do things that maybe you, you never thought of before hunting-wise, mm-hmm. you know, like when I first went to Canada, like moose, for example, was... To me, I'm like, you know what, you know, moose is big old dumb moose. He lives mm. in a swamp. You mm. know, I'm I'm a mountain hunter. That's kind of where my mind is. Hunting goats and sheep is kind of how my mind and body operates. And a moose is, it's not the opposite of that, but almost. Yeah. And to start off with, I didn't really enjoy it because I didn't really know what was going on, and mm-hmm. it, it wasn't didn't have my head in the game. And then after you you spend a bit of time hunting moose and you start to figure them out and you start to see them and you go, oh, this is actually a lot more challenging than it first looks mm-hmm. and they're actually a cool critter and they they have their own little... Quirks? Yeah, little quirks <laughs> and little things you have to do and it's the same with all hunting. It can seem, you have a good day and it seems easy and you have a mm-hmm. bad day and you think, what the hell am I doing wrong? And, and that's yeah. where I think international hunting is really good because it puts you outside of your normal comfort zone and outside your realm and you get to see a different side of the the hunting world and you come home and you go oh what I do actually isn't that hard or go what I do is you know really hard comparatively or- <laughs> hard yeah 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 you know definitely there's a lot to, there's a lot to be learned to be putting in a new challenge and um that would be you know like we, we talked about going international obviously but it would be the same for me to get dropped in the north island and try and hunt seek or rooster yeah be like be 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 like a sinking ship for the first few days i could tell you that like but it, it's something i want to do um it's yeah again just another balance thing but it's it definitely is and and i think i think 
you know, if you summarize you know, what it is you just said, I think when you actually look into what it is that makes the species whatever it is in terms of its size, its look, its environment, its temperament, um, and then you start looking at those traits and learning your lessons as you do it, then every animal can have its challenge. Yeah. Um, it's it's sort of like a, a foolish preconception that something's going to be easy. Because everyone gets an easy one yeah. or, or a couple or whatever. But, you know, the guys that back themselves up annually every year, like, they're good. Yeah, you've, yeah. you've, got, you've got to work at it. And a lot, of, a lot of things you can make them easier or harder depending on the goals you set yourself or the way you go about it. You know, if you go out... Oh, I'm going to go and shoot a deer tonight, and you hop in a truck with a spotlight, and you go and shoot mm-hmm. a deer. Straight to the loose end paddock. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can make it happen. Or if you want to go out there with a with a recurve bow and shoot a deer, it's the yep. other end of the spectrum. So you've got to you've got to kind of choose your battles and and make it as challenging as you want it to be, really, without without making it too hard. I don't think. But <laughs> yeah, well, it's a difficult one because I I <laughs> I, I, I I totally agree in the fact that. You know, it's got to mean something to you. Like shooting a deer off the back of the lucerne paddock, which I've done. I'm not yeah. belittling, but I've done that because I wanted one for the freezer, yeah. not for any hunt value. Um, where I get confused with that now is we have this amazing ability on social media to make everything look like it was a dramatic hunt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so we're, we're we're you know, like I get so conflicted with how much was real. Like how hard did they work for that? Or and and it even flows now for me as a bit of a personal gripe to some of these hunting competitions where you weigh an entire stag. I'm like, yeah. uh, <laughs> how did that happen from from three <laughs> hours in the back of the hast or something? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's like Jesus. Yeah, I haven't been to a hunting competition for a long time, and as kids, you know, we used to love it. You know, as kids, it's it's the best thing out. Well, it's- and that's what I think. Four yeah. kids, four kids are they're really good because you know there's, socially there's a lot of people there, and you, you go out and you shoot whatever, and you win a hat and you win a jacket and you get, get a, cool get a pint of coke. <laughs> everyone, everyone gets a prize, and oh, it's awesome. And, but you know, at the end of the day, the heaviest stag goes to the guy with the best access, yeah, with yeah. the best farm and the best yeah. four wheel drive track. And yeah, I agree, and I think. Um, I think it, like I have a real mixed emotion with the competitions because I, I think they're good for longevity in the sport because we need to be giving the youth yeah a good in the sport you know um, but should we be using them to to better tick off some of the other issues around hunting like should they be whatever nanny heads so you don't have to bring the whole animal mm. out you just got to bring out a tally or you know or something that proof of tally um, and use them in areas where there's management like Canadian geese like. Mm. They don't shouldn't have to be about how many points it's got and how big the pig is, because in some areas we just need the geese shot and the nanny's yeah. cold and you know and perhaps and and still try and incentivize and keep the kids keen on that, but I guess tick more boxes with it. Yeah, trying to use it as a a management tool or a prom- kind of a, I don't know maybe promoting the right mentality within the community yeah. tool um, because measuring hunting success you know whether like a hunting competition here the heaviest pig or you know like a douglas score you know the best stag or you can't measure hunting success the hunt value. You yeah, know, yeah. The, the biggest stag doesn't go to the best hunter that's yeah it's not how it works yeah <laughs> no no definitely not and the the i guess the and i, I when i 
I say what I'm about to say. Um, it's very honest because I have some good properties. Like it's largely the, the access. Yeah, you know, in, in a I, lot of situations, I know a, yeah. I know a few guys that don't have good mm-hmm. access, and they pig hunt dockland just time after time, and they quite often get beat, but they catch their fair share of pigs too, and they're they're right up there amongst the pig hunters, like versus somebody that's works on a station and has all their kills <clears throat> sitting in piles, and yeah, you know, like, <laughs> but but that's that's individual. So I guess going back to your I guess your transition into taking over. Hard yards hunting, and I guess a shift away from high percentage of recreational hunting to now working mm. and guiding. Like, where, what's been the biggest change in your hunting, your your for you personally? How I hunt now, mm. um, I do a hell of a lot more sitting and looking and walking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Kiwis in general, compared to international hunters, from what I've done hunting and people I've guided is we use our physical toughness probably more than our brains. Mm-hmm. No, 100% <laughs> I 100% agree. I think Kiwis Kiwis are probably the one of the more tougher breeds of people out there but we're probably not the smartest mm-hmm. in terms of hunting. Like there's a lot of I see it all the time you see it in the hut books and you see young guys at the end of the track and you know they're What's your goal? And my goal is to outwalk everyone else. Yep. I'm going to walk to the Get fucking. Further. I'm going to walk to the head <laughs> of the valley and see nothing. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's 100 percent true. It, it it depends what you're trying to achieve. You know that there are times where I do trips like that where I'll set a goal where my goal is not necessarily to shoot an animal. It might be to get through a certain pass and to look mm-hmm. into a certain valley just because I want to go there. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm walking past animals to get there, yep. but. You know, I want to see over the ridge, see what's on the other side. But I think once you start guiding, you know, when I first started guiding, I was only, the first couple of trips I did, I was only 16, 17 with my uncle. And you imagine 16, 17-year-old kid. told to sit still. Kid who's, <laughs> you know, used to chasing goats around in Marlborough and, you know, you see a tire up on a bluff, bluff and you're like, let's let's get yeah, after it. You a know? to B. And most of the clientele uh I think clientele are getting younger probably now, but internationally the average client's probably close to his 50s, mm-hmm. you would say. You know, they have to have the time and the money to afford to go on a trip. And the sacrifice is normally your fitness and your body starts to break down, and that's that's just age. It's no fault, yeah, no yeah, fault yeah, of yeah, anyone. Yeah. That's just what happens. Yeah, and you can try your best, but yeah, you're, and, not, you're not going to counter it. And for me, that's a big learning curve. Like, I can get to the hill you know get to the top of the hill an hour before my client but what's the point when mm-hmm. he's the one who's got to shoot the animal mm-hmm. so you've got to you've got to change your mindset um and use you know you're kind of cunning a bit more than your physical ability because yep. you're only as fit as your client is yeah, yeah, yeah. you're only as fast <clears throat> as the slowest yeah. yeah yeah and i think that's a big learning curve for young guides i think i think most young guides in the mountain hunting world would have that problem you know, mm-hmm. because most guys start out late teens, early twenties, and you're fit as hell, and you're used to yep. running up the mountains, and yep. then you and you get fit quick. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And your guy turns up, and he's fifty five and smoking darts, and you know he's just <laughs> chugging along, and you're like, shit, let's go, we need to get going. But really, you've got to slow down and relax and look around, and you know, make sure you don't walk past the big one. Yeah, because that happens. Yeah, um, for sure it does. I, I even. 
get that in, in pig hunting now with my dogs. Like, I have people come for a pig hunt with me or guys that run their own dogs. And like, mm. what, what are you sitting down for? Why don't we keep walking? I'm like, those four-legged friends of mine, they can smell things way better than I can. So there's no <laughs> point in me just keep walking. Like, And, uh, it, you know, it definitely pays off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's it's it's good that you advocate that, especially for the young guys, because they do miss that. I think, but I don't think they miss it. But I think it's a part of naturally figuring it out, and yeah. that only just takes time on the hill. And so, from what I understand of hard yard hunting, and of what I see understand of Joseph, is you are. Uh, well, without sounding really American, like the real deal, like a mountain hunter, uh, explorative, adventurous, and and hunting to a high self expectation. I try. I try to be. Yeah. 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 I think when I I started guiding with my uncle, you know, all I knew was was hunting a mixture of you know the back of big properties and and public land and you had to walk up hills to get animals. That was how it worked. And pretty much all of my uncle's hunting was free range, but he did do a little bit of estate hunting. And and I did a little bit of that when I started out. And it kind of put a bit of a bad taste in my mouth, you know, going from hunting wild reds and public land on, you know, over the back of my parents' property and then down to shooting a big 20-pointer in a paddock or whatever, you know, or, chasing a fellow deer around on a block and you kind of think this isn't this isn't what hunting is about really you mm-hmm. know is, is this why, why am i why am i doing this you mm-hmm. know you're sitting there and you go what is this about is this is about just shooting a deer you know we'll run them in the yards and shoot them <laughs> yeah or is this about going hunting so i made the decision when i took over from my uncle that my business was going to be about hunting not about shooting animals and you know we still have to have a high success rate you've still got to go out there with a chance you're going to get something Mm -hmm. but for me I don't want to sacrifice what I think is the hunt the chase you know there has to be a bit of challenge there has to be the chance for the animal to get away and high fence hunting the way it's conducted in New Zealand I think distracts from what hunting is about and I think that the clientele miss out on on what the hunt is about because of that. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're all like that. There's there is some good properties here to hunt on, and some. Yeah, and I, I and I, a hundred percent agree with what you're saying. But then I guess there's probably due to you know being bigger than me and you, like it's a business, it's an industry. There's probably some client that aren't looking for more than that too. Yeah, you know. So um, there's horses for courses. So yeah, say, yeah, yeah. Each model. Yeah, yeah. It takes it takes everyone to make the industry work. Um, but I think there needs to be balance in the industry. And at the moment in New Zealand, I don't think there is that balance. I think our industry is very much one-sided. Um, and I think there's other places in the world where the industry is like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you feel like, I guess that sort of comes from an ethical standpoint, but also does it come from almost being the minority? Like, you know, do you feel like uh, Big Brother's dominating us here? Like, um, it- A bit of both. And I think as a as a business, when you're starting out and, you know, the business I took over had been around for a while, but I was 
kind of making it start again and trying to revamp it, you've got to have a point of difference as well Mm -hmm. if you're running a business. And if you step into the New Zealand industry at the moment and say, I've got a high-end launch and I hunt stags behind wire, you join the line, you know. That's yeah. Yeah. you know yeah. how many other New Zealand hunting safaris are there? Yeah. You know, so you can only price compete at that point. You know, and the the industry is pretty saturated mm-hmm. with that, and I don't think you have to be very competitive. You've got to have a bit of cash behind you, and you've got to really work hard to try and even get a foot in the door in that industry because it's it's been done. You know, there's yep. there's guys that have been established for twenty or thirty years and. You know, they're good at what they do. Yep. So yep. leave them to it and do something else. That's, yep. That's what I think anyway. So when you in your so obviously your clients need to be capable of doing the hard yards. Uh, so what 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 are you sort of doing? Seven days? Our average hunt, yeah, is probably a week. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we do. We still do private land hunts. You know, we're not all wilderness backpack in the mountains. We we still have to rely on the, the yep. private land and that's always going to be the, the backbone of the New Zealand industry because it's just the way it works here. Um, and with private land, and you'll know, you know, a lot, a lot of private properties, you can make it easy or hard depending mm-hmm. on how you hunt it. You know, a lot of private properties, you've got four-wheel drive tracks around and you can just sit in the truck and drive around and shoot a deer out the window if, you, if you're there for a week or you can do the whole thing on foot and it might take you three or four days to get to get a go at a stag and the beauty of that is you can pick and choose your battles and you know you get a diverse range of clients come and you've mm-hmm. got to read your client and that is something that we try and do we try not to make every hunt the same you know every yeah. hunter we get is different we get guys from Europe we get guys from North America we get people from Australia we get people from all over the world and some guys are fit some guys want to do a full backpack hunt some guys are older and they just want to cruise and have a good time and so we have to talk to you guys leading up to your hunt and think about it and go, this is the hunt for this person and this is the hunt for that person, whereas the biggest scale industry where you start cranking through you know, hundreds of clients a season, you've got to just lump everyone into yeah, the same yeah. mould and They're all doing the same thing. everyone's getting a hunt and this is how it's going to happen. Yep. So, you're, so your clients are carrying their bags? <laughs> On it. Most of our hunts are just day hunts, so yep. they're just carrying a little day pack. Um, yep. We do do a few full-blown backpack hunts, yep. um, but they're only a couple of seasons, um, yep. and I'm pretty cautious on who I take on those hunts because yep. it's no fun. You know, I'm not out there to put clients into you know a bad position. I'm not out there going to punish someone into the dirt just because yeah, yep. just to makes to me feel boxes. tough or something. Yeah, yeah. You know. You know, you have to look at it, and this is something I learned early on as a guide. The hunt's not about me, you know, it's about the client. This is the hunt they want. Um, so you have to you have to make the hunt for them, and part of that is they have to be able to do it. Yep. Um, and the full backpack hunt, there, there definitely is a market for that, but it's a small market, and you've got to pick your battles and make sure yeah, that yeah. guys can do it. Yeah, um, yeah. So... You know, from following you on social media and seeing, I guess some of your, I guess what what would look to me as more explorative hunts, you also look really hard on gear. <laughs> um, like what what are, what's your theory with gear? Like, do you buy quality, or is there a few hidden gems? Because I um, I feel myself 
and I'll, I'll let you know before you, before you dig a rabbit hole for me or for you. Um, I, I feel like there is a lot of good gear, and then there's just a lot of gear that's just branded well that yep. isn't actually worth what you'd pay for it. Yep, there's definitely a lot of really good marketing teams out there, especially yep. in the last few years, you know. Yep. Hunting and especially mountain hunting and light, everything's got lightweight written on it and everything's got a cool camo pattern and the hunting industry has become very commercialised. Mm-hmm. Kind of in my generation, things have changed a lot and gear has become a a big thing. You know, 30 or 40 years ago, you had a 303 and you wore boots and mm-hmm. everyone had a 303 and everyone fucking wore boots and yeah. you go to the shop and you they come in different sizes but they're all the same. Yeah. And and that was about it. And, yeah, oh, my jacket leaks and so does mine and I've got wet boots and you get over it. Um, I don't know, like the last few years I've spent a lot of money on gear because, you know, you, you do a few trips and this breaks or the jacket leaks or that's no good and you think there's got to be something better so you go and buy the better one and it's no better and it breaks and I don't know, I've kind of changed my opinion. Like I used to think buy the real good spendy stuff and it'll last you but my experience is sometimes some of the cheapest stuff is just as good mm-hmm. as the spendy stuff. The, the expensive stuff can break just just the same, and it costs yeah, well, a lot more. Yeah, and there's and and for for some extremes, which you know, you increase the likelihood when you start playing in the mountains for durations of time. Like when you rip something on a rock, it doesn't matter whether it costs you five hundred or a hundred. Like that, that <laughs> sort of stuff, and that that's where my mentality always kicks in. Like I've regardless of whether it's been here in New Zealand or overseas or whatever it is I'm doing, I've always had a very rural Kiwi approach. Like, yeah. that'll do. Yeah. You know, like, and, and it and it probably shows. I had a conversation with Cam from um, Point South about the first, like, yeah. I was like, how do you look after good gear? Because I just either leave it in my truck till the next Saturday or yeah. wash it with the sheets and the towels. Like, yeah. I, whatever. And he just sort of gave me that look on his face like he couldn't believe I just said that out loud. And I was like, well, that's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, like, and there's no point in me lying about it because you can look at my gear and see it. Yeah. Like, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. And for a lot of us, especially guides, you know, it comes down to gear's just tools. Yeah. Rifles don't have feelings. Yep. You know, your pack doesn't cry when it falls down the mountain. It's just yep. a bit of gear. And you've got to use it as such. And I mm-hmm. think, I think a big thing I've learned is New Zealand conditions are different to a lot of what the world's gear is made for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at North America, most of the gear is developed and designed in the Western states, and the Western US is high altitude, dry, snow falls like powder. Yep. <laughs> None of those things happen here. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of that elevation hunting, like, because there's obviously that sort of new influx with the sheep hunting and high altitude hunting. Like it's sparse land almost. Yeah. You know, like I've... Vegetation's very open. Yeah, whereas I've, whatever, picked up and had or bought some quite expensive, you know, backpacking gear from the States and a couple of Madagari bushes and a, <laughs> and a rosehip bush next and it's like, ugh, <clears throat> that wasn't the biggest investment. Yeah, yeah, The generally the... You know, it's, it's hard to generalise huge areas, but generally the forest... And the same in Europe as well is it's open underneath. You walk around through the bush and you don't get hooked up on stuff. You know things like rifles, scabbard, scabbard packs, yeah, and things yeah. like that. that 
absolutely no use when you're in the New Zealand bush. And the same with packs that stick out. And so I think part of that is looking at gear that's designed for, you know, part, like coastal Alaska is similar to here. Um, Scandinavia is similar to here as well. Um, our New Zealand designed and built gear is pretty small. Um, you don't have a lot of options. Um, this, these pants I'm wearing right now, Earth, Sea, Sky, they're, mm-hmm. they've been a a good sort of game changer for me for a lot of gear. They're not they're not a hunting brand, um, but a lot of that Alpine gear is the first point for for good yeah. mountain hunting gear. Like because yep. I I know I don't actually own any of it, but the Actrix, Actrix, yeah. sorry, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the mountain guys I was working with were wearing that kind of stuff. Um, I've actually got some Earth Sea Sky stuff, and one of my polar fleece tops has got to be actually twenty years old. Yeah, like legit. Like yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's good, and it's I don't know. It's always nice to buy New Zealand own. Yeah, and, yeah. It know. is. It is good. I'm trying to support. It's hard because we've got limited options here, mm-hmm. um, but I'm trying to more support more New Zealand made stuff and New Zealand designed stuff. Um, and I think the durability is a is a big thing that you know North American hunting season you know for most guys is maybe a couple of months mm-hmm. they might do three months most guys here are hunting eight ten months of the year maybe maybe you hunt every weekend mm-hmm. and a lot of guys do mm-hmm. and that is a big difference you know you're using your gear all the time and you get to a patch of Madagari you don't walk around it you just walk through it yeah. and you know you've just got to your gear's just got to either live through it or it just gets shredded and you throw yeah. it away and Go back to the old period of moleskins and all. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Like, um, well, like I was, <clears throat> I was always of that because I just went through pants and like the the, the biggest game changer for me, and I'm, I assume they won't mind me saying it was uh, twin needle chaps. Yeah, that like for pig hunting, not mm. for the high up stuff that you're doing. Um, game changer for me, like because then I could still wear my rugby yeah. shorts, <laughs> yeah. but just go straight through that Madagari and it didn't affect it. Yeah, um, and I think that's a big thing where people need to. When was that? A couple of years ago when I was at the Seeker show, I was invited to be on the Kuyu booth. And we had you know, your classic North Island pig hunter come up and looking at the Kuyu gear. And he went, oh, you know, how's this going? The bloody blackberries. And I'm like, it'll be shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wrong wrong, you know, wrong topic. You know, you can't take lightweight mountain gear and use it for bush hunting and think it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And I think people have to realise that. Like brands like Kuyu especially, it's very specific. It's yeah. and it well, looks it looks cool, but if you're a hunting seeker in the bush, it's not designed for you, and you're probably going to be dis- no. disappointed with some and, of and it. And that that genuine backpack gear that's that's made for that actually spends a good portion of time in your backpack. Yeah, like it's not high wearing yeah. stuff. You know what I mean? That's why it's designed that way. Like it sits in there <clears> until you're sit down to glass, or you're in the tops and you're exposed, and then you're putting on your different layers. Like. It's very different. Like it's not like our swan dry that we wore, whether we were fishing, white baiting, or hunting the tops. Yeah. Like those days are gone. <laughs> yeah, and there's always a always a compromise, and the compromise for weight is pretty much always durability. Yeah. You know that's just the way it works. You can't have a thin jacket that will be as tough as a thick one. Mm-hmm. It's just it just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess it's pretty simple mass, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And um. So, w- without an education and gear, we'll shift off to to food. 
how does that go for backpacking? Genuine backpacking. Dehigh meals get old real quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Especially like the North like when I was at Golden Bear, we were on Mountain House, Mountain House. for pretty much the whole season. Yeah. With just you know, the meat, you know, we'd have moose and mountain goat, whatever. Yeah. When we shot an animal, but you can't live off. No, I did, I did seven weeks on that stuff. Yeah. And it, it's not good for you. No. It's and not. When your I, body actually knows it's not good for it. Like it, I was eating five mountain house a day and snacks near the end of the season, and I was starving. Yeah. And like when I come home, my mum was just like, what, <laughs> what happened what to you? What wrong with you? She was just Give like, him a women tablet quick. She was like, man. <laughs> It's not good, and yeah, you know, I, I was fit. I was fit as hell, and I was yeah. reasonably strong. But man, I was light. I, I never weighed myself, but I was yeah. not heavy. Yeah, and I think it's important to still try and get real food. Mm-hmm. You you do make a sacrifice in a bit of weight and cooking time as well. But I think there is something for real food. I think cheese, cheese is a good thing. Salami. Crackers, mm-hmm. you know, that's as much as it's not real food as such, but that's still something good. Um, couscous, your two minute noodles, um, muesli. There's there's a lot of ways to make the same sort of food without spending the money on yep. packaged food. Um, at the moment, I've got um, quite a lot of meals from Radix Nutrition, mm-hmm. which are the New Zealand based, New Zealand made, and they're a bit different to your normal dehigh meal. I've only had a couple of them. I took them to Kazakh and we didn't... The food was so good over there, I didn't use them at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was supposed to test them out over there, but I didn't. And they're designing their food... Um, like at the moment, there's a Russian... Russian rower, I can't remember his name. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm not going to remember his name. There was no point of me trying, but an old fella. <clears throat> he's 65 or something, yeah. 67 he might be, and he's going to row around the Southern Ocean. Yeah. It's only going to take two years or something. It's only going to take him two or three years. Yeah. You know? so, oh, it's just I a just casual gag when I heard that. I was like, huh? <laughs> it's just a casual trip. Yeah, some and, sort of retirement. <laughs> and Radix Nutrition is supplying him the food for that. Yep. And their food is not designed to get you through a week. It's designed to live off. Mm-hmm. Um, and the calories in their food, you know, that's the biggest thing with the dehyde meals is you can just never get enough energy. Yep, caloric value is low. Yeah. Their expedition meals have about double the caloric intake of any other dehydrated meal on yep. the market. So that yep. in itself, you know, instantly is just like, oh my god, I'm mm-hmm. not hungry. <laughs> I can yeah. actually keep going off this. Yeah, um, yeah, because we we well, yeah, the podcast is partly sponsored by Go Native, mm-hmm. um, and, and and we we discussed with them about you know food and caloric and and the, and the things like that, and it, it is a really good. Food, um, I guess, because it's not dehydrated for one. Yeah. Because um, I, th- I think the other, the other aspect, you you need the caloric value, but there's something around the emotion of actually eating real food too. Yeah. That because when you got long durations in the mountain and it, it <coughs> looks like flaky cardboard again or something yeah. that the rats have eaten over winter, and then you, you know you heat it up and you put some hot water in it and it's never quite dehydrated and some bits are tough and so it's. It is emotively tough when yeah. you, when you're working hard and stuff. And yeah, yeah, I know there's guys out there that you know I do a ten day hunt and they have ten mountain house or ten backcountry meals or whatever, and it's just the same shit every night. And just think outside the box, man. Like there's so much stuff out there, like yep. tuna pouches yep. and noodles. Yep. That's 
cost you a couple of bucks there, instant yep. meal. Yeah, and just mix it up. You know, yeah. just it has to be different. You can't eat the same stuff. Yeah, I remember stuff. my younger days um, doing the fuel and stuff, and that was like you say, a block of cheese, streaky bacon to help with the weight, um, and then it was like a ninety-nine cent budget pasta with the tomato puree sachets. Mm-hmm. Type of thing, you know, like it was, and then the salami and the crackers, and it was not far off enough. And dry porridge, yeah. which gets heavy when it's wet and you eat it, so. Yeah, there's definitely other ways around it, but it's it's a wee bit hard too with with the client again, like yeah. <clears throat> trying to jazz it up a little bit. I guess. Yeah, for for a guided backpack backpack hunt, it's tough. Like in Canada, we've just it's just mountain house stuff, mm-hmm. and and as a guide, your dehydration meals are great when you come into camp at midnight and everyone's over it. You boil water and put it in a bag, and there's dinner. You hop to sleep back and eat it, go to yeah. sleep. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. good, and. It's good to have that option, but I think you've got to have, you know, a, a bit of mix it up a bit. You know, you've got to have a few different things on the menu. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then what about um, what about fitness? Like, what are you doing out of season, or, or is it sort of that typical Kiwi thing? You just sweat it out for the first you couple just, of hunts and deal with it, and then you just harden up. When yeah, you get there. yeah, yeah. Um, for me, I'm still young, so mm. I've still got youth on my side. And I try to. I haven't done bugger all hunting this spring because the weather's been so average in the high country. But I try to over the spring and summer as I get out every couple of weekends and run around the hill. And, you know, just I usually just I write down a list of places I haven't been, valleys I haven't been, creeks I haven't been. And I just pick on them and just go, oh, I'll just go in there for a look and go in there for a look. Yeah. Um, I think in New Zealand we're lucky that we can hunt all year round. Mm-hmm. And I think the average Kiwi training to hunt you know things like scouting like yeah why would you, well, you only get good at climbing hills by climbing hills yeah. that's how i look yeah. at it <clears throat> yeah but i think the training to hunt has become a a big thing and it's great it's great to see guys training and especially you know clients that are preparing for a hunt you know yep. a year out getting as fit as you can but i think if you can get out on the hill get out on the hill mm-hmm. the hill is better than the gym every time yeah well and i think I think there's a little bit, and what I've always found, and it's probably just a, a, a pretty good assumption of my life, when I hunt with fitter guys on the hill, mm. that's the best thing for my fitness. Yeah. Um, and I think because it teaches you, it, it teaches or encourages your mental fitness, like, and that matters a lot. Because mm. I've hunted with some really fit guys that just can't do it. And I've hunted with some really unfit guys, they will <clears> do it all day long. Yeah. Might be at a, slower portion of pace but they'll do it all day long and then do it again the next day and I think that's that's where that matters so yeah I think people especially guys training in the gym you need to realise hunting is endurance mm-hmm. you know it's not a strength sport it's not a speed sport you know you think even you know your fastest pig hunt it might be a, an hour or two mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's still longer than a rugby match mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know and then you start looking at a 10 day hunt yeah, you know what sport out there are you running around for ten days? Ultra marathon? Oh, but it's not ten days. No, no, no. no. <laughs> you think the coast to coast? That and it's um, it's you not, know, it's what, when days. you sort of add that emotion and passion into it, like you could be like for a pig hunt, say, yeah, it might only be a couple of three hour walk, but at that three hour point, the dogs then take off and bail mm. up, and then all of a sudden it becomes a hill climb slash run. <laughs> yeah, like it's a very high level of exertion or. Even the same, you know, when you're mountain hunts, you could be three days into it, and then 
in the last couple of hours of a daylight, there's your opportunity and it's going to require a hill climb faster than what we've been doing. Like, it's it's definitely, and that, that I, you know, I don't, I don't have a degree in this kind of thing, but I, that's where that mental fortitude or toughness or, and, and it, it probably ties directly to the the real desire. You know, yeah. when guys just think they want to go for a tarn, yeah. you probably notice that straight off the bat. Whereas, Guys that want a tar hmm. and want it to be rewarded with a tar for their effort, they they will find that little bit. Yeah. Um, so so being a guide in New Zealand, obviously we sort of touched on it a little bit, but as a boy, it was probably like you hit the jackpot the day that was signed over. Yeah. <laughs> um, how's how's the reality side of things? And, and I, I I don't need a whole education on it, but what I mean is like there's a there's a lot of guys, and obviously due to the game I'm in or the industry I'm in like I get a lot of guys that say they want to get into the guiding career and get into the industry and so forth like what's the what's the reality what's it going to take yeah I think you know you're in the same game as well you get guys coming out of school and they've done a bit of hunting and they see you know guides and they think you get to go hunting every day and you get paid for it that's that's the dream and you know at the end of the day a lot of it is not hunting You've got to get up in the morning, you've got to cook breakfast, you've got to cook breakfast at night, mm-hmm. and you're the first one up, and you're the last one to go to bed, and when your client's tired, you've got to carry his bag, and you've got to help old mate when he's got wet boots, yep. and you've got to... 100%. There's all that other stuff that no, one, that no one talks about. Everybody <laughs> that comes and sees me at my booth or whatever, like I'm like, the the, the glossy pictures are here to help you get to this point, yep. but it's a customer service role. Yep. Like you are dealing with that person... Yeah, uh, you're there to make their trip an enjoyable experience, like, and you got to do whatever it takes f- for all those points. Yeah, pulling the trigger is the the smallest, <clears throat> easiest part of this whole damn thing. Yeah, like it's everything from A to B that matters, and then and they're the parts that make good guides. Yeah, and that's why, like, I get a lot of, in 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 the stuff I do, like, I get a lot of guys that are pretty good hunters, d- definitely successful, um, but don't always make great guides or assistant guides whereas I get some real humble guys that are about the experience and are good with people and they've probably done a little few things outside of life you know and they make great guides yeah um, and <clears throat> so I, for me when I have young guys come to me and they're sort of like you know I want to be a guide I'm like well just go out and get some worldly experience and it doesn't even have to be in hunting just go and meet some different cultures and have it good have it bad have it easy have it hard that's, that's the bits that make a guide yeah I think people you know, think I was a guide. Oh, you've got to be an awesome hunter. Or you've, you know, like I've I haven't guided very many Kiwis, but I go out with a few Kiwis on you know just weekend trips yeah. or whatever. And a lot of people, think, oh, he's a guide. You know, he's going to be some fucking yeah, you know, yeah, what, yeah. What could I possibly do that's going to be amazing? You know, just yeah. I'm just a hunter. I'm the same as anyone else. Yeah, yeah. But it's the it's the other stuff, and it's the being able to keep an eye on people's health and and yeah. well being. You know, especially in the mountain hunting world. You know, things can go wrong, the shit hits a fan, there's a big storm and everyone's wet and cold and you just want to climb in your sleeping bag and go to sleep, but you've got to cook dinner yep. for your client and you've got to sit out in the rain and you've got to you make, know, sure, warm make sure his tent's not going to fall down in the middle of the night and that is where good guides come into their own yep. is when things are going wrong and you've got to actually think and go, what can I do to look after everyone? Yep. Or, you know, what do I want to do? And you go, shit, I want to hop in my sleeping bag and go to sleep. That is what my client wants to do. That's so I'll the last get, thing you're doing. <laughs> I'll get him to do that first, and you've got to really sacrifice yourself um, 
to make sure your guys are getting looked after. Yeah, yeah. One of one of <clears throat> I guess my good friends who's an outfitter in Canada. The way he words it is. If one of my guides can take out a client for a fourteen day sheep unsuccessfully and he gets rebooked, he's mm. the best guide I've got. Yeah. That's got you know, like they have the buckles and all the glossy bits for animals, but like sometimes it's they they deserve, but then other times it's just opportunity. Yeah. Um, and I think that's hunting as a whole. So but that's cool. So we touched on Canada, um, but you've recently just come back from an How's overseas that? experience. Yeah. Yeah, I had the run op- us through that. I had the opportunity to go over to um, Kazakhstan, chase after a, an ibex, which has been on the list for a, ever since I was born. I don't know mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, it was something my uncle Bernard had on his list, um, and it was supposed to be his fiftieth. Um, and I was going to be the bag boy, you know. I was just going to tag along, and I was going to try and tag along anyway. And that never eventuated. There was a number of different things went wrong. And then just over the last couple of years, I started looking at it a bit more seriously. And it's like, you know, Bernie's coming up 60. He's getting a bit worn oh, out. So it's, it's, yeah, it's only, eight, eight years on or something like that. It was only that. 10 years late. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got to make it happen before he's he's yeah, going to yeah. be worn out. Like yeah. he, did that, he did that whole hunt. He, he had sore knees for a long time. He's got arthritis in his hips and... He goes to the doctor and oh, and he's sore. Oh, it's nothing wrong. He goes to another doctor. There's nothing wrong. With it. He goes to the third doctor and oh, you've got no ACL. It's just it's non-existent. <laughs> you know how long's that been gone? And then he starts messaging me. He's like, oh shit, oh, my knee's going to fall apart. And I was like, fuck, it might have been like that for five years. You don't even know. So he he got through it fine. Um, our trip in Kazakh was was really good. Um, there's so we're Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan we is fly Dubai. Yeah, we went Dubai yeah. into El Mardi. Um the hardest part was the flight and the drive. <laughs> yeah. Um just in duration or yeah, it was twenty uncomfortable. Oh, I don't think there's anything comfortable about sitting on a plane for twenty two hours. I think it was twenty two yeah. hours of flying. We'd lay over in Dubai fourteen hours. Oh lay- layovers then, are the worst part. <laughs> and we got into El Mardi at like three o'clock and then we drove the Yeah, in the morning. And then we drove until 7 p.m. is when we got into camp. Oof. And, and what, a, like a beaten up old... No, no, and a new Hilux. Oh, okay. But that was... Most of that was like off-road, like low box. Right. <laughs> like low box oh. off-road. Like, like old mate was driving. Like, you know, if you want to see... Were they, were they English speaking, the guys that um, picked you up and so forth? So we had our guy, Eugene, who's kind of the organised... Man, he he speaks good English and Russian. He met us at the airport, took us through customs, sorted all our rifles and paperwork and things like that. And the, the poor guys in the little airport booth, we come through and we pull out our New Zealand passports and they look at this and they go to the next booth, go to the next booth, and we're standing there. They've never seen it, like yeah. never seen a New Zealand passport before at all. They're like, "What the hell? Did they make this up?" Like <laughs> there was supposedly a group of climbers couple of years ago that went to Kazakh and they got held up in customs under fake passports yeah, fake passports and they go oh, we're from New Zealand and they pull out their big map <laughs> New Zealand's not on it there's a big map <laughs> on the world New Zealand's cut yeah, off yeah. on the corner which is quite normal and they were stuck in the airport for a day I think or more before they finally convinced them New Zealand was a real country um, so Eugene <laughs> was good 
organised everything. All our rifles were fine. All our luggage turned up, which was which was good. Because mm-hmm. you do hear some horror <clears throat> stories. Yeah. Yep. And then we jumped in our truck with um, what was his name? Jurgen. Was it Jurgen? I think it was Jurgen. Was our driver? He could speak a little bit of English. He was only a younger guy, but he could drive. <laughs> he lived. He lived up to his job description. And we drove, we did about 300 k's on a good highway, like four-lane highway. And I was thinking, wow, this is great. This, what are they worried about? This road's, somewhere. road's better than New Zealand. We're clipping along at 120, and then it kind of went to a, it was supposed to be tarmac, but it would have been better off if it was gravel. It was just potholes with a bit of tarmac in between. We did 200 k's of that, and then we got right near the Chinese border, and then it was like off-road, like yeah. low-box mountain travel. And in our camp... We had a translator um, who spoke really good English, and we had we each had kind of like a guide and a wrangler each, mm-hmm. um, and it was Anatoly was the kind of area manager or camp manager for our our hunting um, area, and he could he couldn't really speak English, he could understand it a bit, and he kind of run the show. Um, so how do, do they lease land? Like what? How do... So in Kazakhstan they used to have. Um, like national park hunting, public mm-hmm. land hunting. And 2016, that all shut down. I'm not sure why, um, but that shut up a lot of outfitters there because they just didn't have the access. So the area we had was, it would kind of be like leasehold, would you kind of describe it. I think they have it on like a 50-year lease. Mm-hmm. Um, it was 32,000 hectares, and that was within, when we drove into it, we come to like a little roadblock and there's a few little houses there and that was the start of it wasn't a national park but it was wildlife preserve or something they called mm-hmm. it that was 187,000 hectares which is like half a million right. acres yeah. a big block and then we drove up and then in, within that we had about 30,000 hectares we're hunting on which is a massive area mm. it was well big enough anyway yeah. um, keep you honest yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep and our guys they were all all the guides were probably in their 40s. They'd hunted in there, I don't know, for how long. Our, our old guy, Anatoly, he was the camp manager. He was probably in his 60s, maybe, or in his 50s. I asked him how long how long he'd been hunting there, and he laughed at me and said he was born there. <laughs> <laughs> right, hasn't gone far from home. Yeah, which I believed. And, and he reckoned there was about 3,000 Ibex within that kind of area they were hunting, and they only shot 15 billies. Hmm. A dozen, fifteen a year, and that was really evident when we were hunting. There was a definite, you know, age class to the animals, a really good herd structure, and it was that made the hunting. I won't say it's easy, but it was fairly easy because the opportunities were, mm-hmm. were opportunity was high. Yeah. but more eyes can make it <clears throat> difficult too. Yep, yeah, <laughs> it can. It's it's big open country, and the ibex were just starting to rut, so they were grouped up. Pretty much all the ibex were in mob at maybe twenty or thirty or more. Mm-hmm. Some I saw a group of maybe near a hundred, um, which obviously get pretty hard to stalk. But um, it was very much a horseback hunt mm-hmm. um, when we did it. We're near the end of their season, late October, um, which is definitely good for anyone out there worried about you know fitness. It wasn't you didn't have to carry all your gear. It was all on the horses and. We did short stalks off the horses, yeah. but it wasn't it was an extreme mountain hunt. It was 
you know, a hunt set up that was going to be successful. And from a business point of view, you know, from an outfitter point of view, that's the way it needs to be. So it was really good. I think the big big plus with Kazakh compared to Kyrgyzstan and Tajik is the altitude. We're generally low altitude. We were at, our base camp was 1,700 metres, and then we were hunting 2,200, maybe 2,500 was mm-hmm. as high as we got, which is maybe 8,000 feet, something yep. like that, which is not... Not, high, not high altitude. I don't think once you start getting much higher than that is when you can start to run into issues. Yep. Um, below two and a half thousand meters, you know, it's just a bit of shortness of breath, and that's mm-hmm. it. Really, yeah. you know, you don't really have many issues quickly too. Yeah. yeah, so that's a big plus um, for Kazakh ibex. Cool. And were you successful? Yeah. 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 I managed to. <laughs> we grin. I, man- <laughs> I managed to get my gun to work. I managed to. <laughs> Shoot, the shooting was not real good. Um, I only had myself to blame for that. But yeah. I shot a billy on day four, I think. Um, it was an old, quite straight horn. We got quite different style across our ibex. You know, some have quite a straight horn, and some have a real big curl. And I shot him on day four, <coughs> and then the next day we went out and I shot another billy oh, so you, on day five. You yeah. two? Yeah, I shot two. Um, mm-hmm. And he's more your classic, the classic Ibex, big curly horns, and just he's just pushing on fifty inches, which is mm-hmm. kind of I think the, like the standard for yep. it, like a trophy, yep. a trophy Billy. Um, the other guys, my uncle and other guy Rob that came with us, they both got nice Billies, and there was two Russian hunters in camp as well, and they shot nice Billies as well. Like, cool, success. Yeah, yep. And I guess like obviously you got to shoot some Billies, so you tick that box. But did it? Did that hunt live up to what your ten years of anticipation, um, or even further? It's uh, you know, it's very different going from you know I've been guiding for for a wee while now, and then to be guided, it, it's a little bit different. It, it's, it's it's nothing to take away from the experience. It's not bad or anything, but it's kind of. You're, you feel like you're forgetting something the whole time. I was kind of like that, like we'd pack up camp and I'm like, well, you know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because I didn't pack the bags, mm-hmm. I felt like, well, you know, what are we missing? Where's the cooker? Where's the tent? You know, because the other guys were doing all that and they were really efficient. They were they were on the ball. My guides, Ali and Sergan, they must have had hunted together for a long time because they... Had a routine. Yeah, they just worked. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't talk. They just, you know, they just set shit up and it worked mm-hmm. and, you know... And they knew they knew each other, and they knew what they were going to do for the day, and it was all pretty well organised. And so, your guides on the hill did did they speak English? Did I no. get that confused? With, no, no, they didn't. So when we left camp, we and I think that's a big thing with a hunt like this, and any guided hunt. I think you have to be. You don't want to be aggressive or anything like that, but you want to be upfront about what your expectation is, and maybe reality is different from that, and they should tell you. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, when you get to camp, we sat down with our translator and Anatoly, the camp manager, and we asked him a lot of questions and explained to him about us. And we said, you know, this is that, and we're only going to shoot this far, and we're looking for this size animal. And you know, is that realistic? And our guys were honest with us, and they said, you know, that's that's a fair expectation to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't we weren't chasing big inches or anything like that. We just wanted to have. A good expectation, good and yeah. we didn't want to be 
put on a ridge and his ibex 800 yards away and some guy would yell and shoot at them, mm-hmm. you know, which you hear stories of. Um, my guides were really good. We sat on multiple days within range, within shooting range of ibex just looking at them through the scope and mm-hmm. and we could... My guys, they'd write on their hand, you know, in centimetres, 110 centimetres or 115 centimetres and, and he was within... Within an inch or two on the really? side shot, yeah. He, nice. He knew he knew what he was doing. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think he'd done it before. <laughs> yeah, he'd been around. Yeah, he'd been around. Um, so I think that's the important thing with a trip like this, and you've got to have a little bit of trust, um, which can be hard for a guide. I think most guides out there probably don't want to guide other guides mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we turn up and we think we know what we're going to do, and yeah. we think we know how it's going to run. But you've got to trust the local guys at the end of the day and I had a bit of that we saw on day two or day three or whatever it is we we saw a really good billy in the distance and I was like shit I'm gonna go over there and kill that and they couldn't ride a horse in there and Kazakhs are a bit like quite a few Canadian guys they're very much like their horses yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah boots are made for going in stirrups not for walking yeah yeah so they they kind of crossed that off the list because they couldn't ride a horse there and I'm thinking Fuck man, it's not that far to walk. It didn't bother yeah, me. Yeah, and you know we we ch- moved, packed up camp, moved to a different valley, and I'm thinking well, we we're riding in the opposite direction from where a big billy is, and we went to another valley, and we could ride the horses up the ridge, and then walk down, and shot my ibex like 300 yards, and ride the horse right to it, mm-hmm. took all the meat, and you know it made it a lot easier. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, that's that's how they do it, and mm-hmm. horseback hunting, like a lot of Canadian outfitters, horseback hunting is the Asian experience mm-hmm. and that's what it is you don't you don't go to Kazakhstan to walk around you go to Kazakhstan because they ride horses ride it's, yeah, it's yeah. part of their culture and, and that's what Kazakhs are though. and so so the meat did you eat the meat? yep was it good? Um, it didn't taste bad or anything like that but you're talking 10 and 12 year old billies yep. like yeah, how yeah. good can it be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah they, they taste fine. They don't, they don't have a bad smell at all. I was surprised. I thought they would be more goaty. Yeah, they didn't. They were only just starting rut. It's just started um, to rut almost. Yeah. So they weren't real stinky. Um, they tasted fine. It was just a bit tough. Mm-hmm. Um, same as a tar. Yeah. Um, one thing that sort of surprised me was they had no fat on them, more or less, and that's just like pre-rut. Mm. I think chamois are probably the only other animal I've seen like that, you know, where chamois can be lean. It's, I have seen fat chamois, but not very yeah, often. Yeah, no. you know, normally a chamois is just a lean critter. And these are the same. They're pre-rut, you shoot a stag pre-rut, you shoot a tar pre-rut, you shoot an elk mm, or moose yeah, pre-rut. Well, they you shoot, themselves up for yeah, the occasion. You, you, you shoot anything pre-rut and it's just covered in fat. Yeah. Whereas these ibex were, they weren't skinny, they were, they were in good nick, but they didn't have fat all over their ass or anything like that. And that so the you obviously ate some but I doubt you ate four ibexes. No. Uh what, what does it just go to the small community or does it get shipped right um, up to town or it was a it was a bit tough to figure out. There was a bit of political stuff going on between the guides and the right. and the translator and the yeah. and the camp manager about who was gonna get all the meat but it it wasn't chucked down the hole, you know. Yeah. It, it yeah. was it was eaten. Um yeah. there was no doubt about that. Yeah. But I'm not sure whether the guides and the local village guys got maybe their fair share. Yeah, right. <laughs> there's, right. A, there's a few po- few politics going on, I think, in most of those places. Oh, I think so. Um, I think that's just something you have to sort of <clears throat> expect over there. So I guess that 
That brings me into something I was supposed to talk to you ages ago in the conversation. I forgot, but anyway, because um, you actually bring out the meat here in New Zealand, don't you? Yeah, we, we are practically. You know, I I, like, I try to within all means um, with our private land hunts. It's pretty easy um, in the scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, for our wilderness hunts, most of our hunts we either end up with a helicopter picking us up yep. one end of the trip or another, which definitely makes life a lot easier. Um, there's certain situations with tar and chamois where you, you can't, I don't care how strong you are, you ain't going to carry that pack out of there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's at some point you've got to let bravado take away side and yep. realise that it, it's kind of dumb to want yep. to do so. Yeah, yep. you'll, you'll kill yourself. I'm or, testament to a couple of back surgeries, like yep. a slow learner. Yeah, yep. so we, we try to... Um, take all our meat a fair portion of it does go to dog food um Mm -hmm. and that's just the way it is you know especially with rutting stags and things like that you get front up front shoulders that are shot up what what do you do um so the properties we hunt on their their shepherds are are pretty happy because you know we chuck it all well a use is still a use yeah 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 i don't like especially on private properties and, and on public land as well i think as hunters, we have to realise there's other people using the land. Mm-hmm. And I did a backpack hunt this this season with some guys from the States, and we we're walking in. You know, this was a full proper backpack hunt walking. And I was on day day two, I think. We were stalking this bull, and we we spooked him or whatever. And I'm sitting there looking down the ridge, and I'm like, "Shit, there's a bull laying there." Laying there pretty funny. Some suspicious guy. Laying there, laying there pretty funny, and I put the scope on. I'm like, he's got no head. Yeah. <laughs> and my guys see this, and they're like, you know, it's just a, a, a mature yeah. tar, and he was in. This was in uh, later April, so he had a cape on him, just his head whacked off. Yeah. And welcome to New Zealand. Yeah. And they're like, what? You know? Yeah, my last tar block, I, I can't remember the name of it, but it was um, on the dark side of the Landsborough, and everything was frozen. Climbed up the first morning, gobbled to a ridge, looked down, and there was four skinned carcasses. Mm-hmm. And because they'd frozen, they were like white beacons. Mm-hmm. I was just like, yeah. <laughs> like, not that it, I guess, uh, morally makes it any better, but at least kick them into a gully. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, it's hard because I've done it. I've, sh- I've shot animals, left them on the hill. We've all done it. Mm-hmm. In New Zealand, especially with an animal like a tar, there's a time and a place for it. Yep. And it has to happen, but I think you have to realise that there's trampers, there's hikers, there's people going to take photos and whatever. There's other people using the land, and yeah, I always try to whip the guts out of something mm-hmm. at the very least, skin it and gut it, and that way it breaks. It breaks down a million times faster if you whip the guts mm-hmm. out of something mm-hmm. and get rid of that gut bag, and then the cares and the pigs and whatever can get inside it and yep. clean them up, um, and just be mindful of that stuff, you know, especially. Around huts and tracks, there's so mm, many huts, so and many huts and tracks. Where you come up to the hut and you just, what does that smell? And it's yeah, all the bits somebody didn't yeah, want to carry. Someone's carried something back to the hut and then go, oh, this back leg's a bit heavier than I thought, and they just throw it in the bushes. Yeah, you know, dispose. If you're gonna chuck something away, chuck away properly. You know, get rid of mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. Um, because that doesn't help anyone. No one wants yeah. to see. No one wants to see rotten carcass, you know, on the hill. No, no, no. no. So yeah, you have to think about that stuff. So then, it'd be fair to say you consume your fair amount of tar. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'll my fair share of tar. Do you? And this is a new question I've started asking people. 
What's your give give me one good recipe? What's your I saw a picture of you eating bone marrow the other day. Oh, I've just started started using kind of more more bits B, more, B grade. <laughs> more bits of the animal. I think it's I think Kiwis are kind of a bit ironic in some ways. Like like you go on the hill and you see that old mate who shot that tar and just whipped the head off it. And it's easy for you to say, oh, that guy doesn't care about the meat. Mm-hmm. But that same guy probably shoots a deer, and I bet he carries the whole fucking thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is where I think Kiwis are quite funny compared to, like, the North American, you know, where everyone bones everything yeah. out, puts it yeah. in their pack. You know, we just whip the guts out and carry the whole deer out. So I think, for me, I get to meat hunt over the spring and summer, and I mainly shoot fallow deer just down the road, and I take the whole thing, everything, mm-hmm. ribs and all the bones and starting to utilize more of the animal and learn mm. you know what what things are good to eat and what things aren't and different recipes so the other day here's, here's a recipe for you this is one i did that was better than expected was um we shot caution, caution at home no no we, we shot we shot a, um we shot a heap of reds so this is two weekends two weekends ago we went out and the paradise ducks beat us in the morning we spooked a group of hinds and yearlings and we drive back and we shot one young hind, got it back on the truck, whole thing. And we're driving back out, and then we bumped into the other mob. And we're like, ah. oh, we'll put a stalk on them, and then we got up there, and there was three of us there, and oh, we'll, we'll have a go. And we started shooting, and oh, we ended up shooting four of them. And they were, Three guys, four deer. Yeah, and they were, <laughs> they were big hinds. Yeah. And we ended up with a lot of meat. Um, and we took I took the red, they were really fat. You know they just they hadn't formed yet, so they're really fat. So I took the ribs off, off one of them, and I did ribs in the roasting pan, and I put nearly a cup of vinegar in there, and the spades, and then just your salt, pepper, and spices, and a bit of oil. I put on the ribs, covered it all in tin foil. Oh, I put two onions in there, a few carrots as well, and then I cook that in the oven for. Six or seven hours, I think, or maybe like a hundred, hundred twenty degrees, yeah. like low heat, and then took the cover off and then grilled it for a bit just to get it all nice. And they were, they're the best deer ribs I've had. What's the? Ever. Uh, I don't know how much you know about cooking. But what's the vinegar? The for? vinegar. The, I think what the dealers with break the, it. Yeah, the vinegar breaks down yeah. like the fibrous tissue yeah. and things like that. Um, so I think that's one of the better ribs hmm. I've done. I normally do ribs in the slow cooker and cook them for a few hours in the slow cooker and then cook them in the oven. But red deer ribs don't fit in the slow cooker. No, yeah, no. no. <laughs> I'm only shooting little fellow deer, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so they fit in my slow cooker. Um, I think ribs on deer, you've got to have fat deer, otherwise they don't really work that well. <laughs> um, but that that was that worked really well. Um, yeah, that awesome. was good. I'll have to try that. I'm planning to shoot a deer this weekend, so... There you go. Down essential, they should be nice and fat. Yeah. So. so I guess to to close up, Joseph, um you've you've ticked off I guess one childhood hunt dream. What's what's next on your bucket list? What's next on my bucket list? I had Tara and Shammy with a bow on my bucket list and I did that. Um I had Tar with a three oh three on the bucket list and I did that. My next kind of big challenge that I'm working on, project I'm working on is kind of uh Back to the Future Hunt, I'll call it, mm-hmm. um, where I want to do a few trips um, using kind of gear that was used 
sort of the turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s, which was the start of hunting in New Zealand. And I think as a gear junkie, I think I've become, it's good to get back to basics every now and then. And I think everyone out there who's got their Gore-Tex jacket and all their fancy gear, just go out once a year with the old Swan Dry and the old Gumboots and open sight 30-30 and just, Mm-hmm. Do it proper for a few days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Appreciate it. <laughs> there's some things you learn, I think, that a lot of gear probably hasn't changed as much as we think it has. And then some things are vastly better. And I think just as an adventure, I think that's going to be really good. I think you learn about yourself a lot and learn about, you know, what what makes people go out into the hills. Mm-hmm. And I think the the old older generation hunters are all sort of dying out now, you know, the guys from the real school. Back when men were men. Yeah, the real era, you know, you, you see the older guys today, oh, back in my day, but what was Gore-Tex was invented in maybe the 80s? Mm. You know, it's been around for a long, like synthetic materials have been around for quite a long time and I think we've lost a lot of the real Bushman skills. Yep. I think navigation and um, just ability to survive, I think, is something that we've lost a lot of. Um, I do a lot of reading of I've just finished Atkinson's book a lot of reading of of old books of kind of that heyday era and camping out for the night with no gear was pretty normal mm-hmm. and guys didn't think much of it and you know men haven't changed much in a hundred years we've got the same bones we've got the same muscles you know why why can't we do what they did mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 no I, I we're we're a bit tougher than we make out I think well yeah. I think we're Tougher than than our preset limits, yeah. And we and we preset our limits, yeah. <laughs> like so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think through needs or adversity, we can be a whole lot tougher than we yeah. deliver each day. Yeah. Um, but no, but but no, it's been a good chat, Joseph. How do we um or how do how do the listeners or anybody interested? How do they find hard yards hunting? Um, so if you just type in old hard yards hunting into into Google, there we've got our website which is www.hardyardshunting.co.nz and on Facebook we're Hard Yards Hunting as well and then our Instagram is just at Hard Yards Hunting I think as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll put all the links uh, in, in the bottom of the podcast notes so anybody scrolling the site can just click on them straight away and, and, and check in on that. Um, so yeah, we would uh, suggest people get in there and have a look at what it is that Joseph's doing, follow his explorative style of mountain hunting and yep. and look forward to his Back to the Future hunt. I'm going to have I'm to. I'm putting the pressure gonna, on there I'm now. I'm going to have to do it now. I've it's told too there. many people. Yeah, yeah, it's out there. I've told uh, too many people. But no, no, it's been a good chat. It's been good to catch up. Um, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Yep, thank you. No worries. Cheers, Joseph. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.